Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of NCEA Podcast. I'm Kevin Baxter, the Chief Innovation Officer for the National Catholic Educational Association. And today we're going to be having a conversation on the unrest and the protests that are taking place across the United States uh, with two of our wonderful leaders, uh, superintendent leaders. I'm joined by Kathy Mears, the interim president and CEO of NCEA. And we also have Dr. Raynell Houston, superintendent from the Archdiocese of New Orleans. And we have Henry Fortier, superintendent in the Diocese of Orlando. And so we want to have a conversation around the issues that are taking place, again, the protests that we're seeing, and obviously then really dig into how our Catholic schools can be instruments of uh, teaching justice and teaching peace and ensuring that the students that we serve in our schools can grow up and uh, really help to transform the world, which needs so much transformation, obviously, that we've seen. So with that, I'm going to um, just uh, pose the first question, and, and Henry, I'll address this to you. Just how are things going in Orlando? Well, here in Orlando, um, Orlando is a very unique city. It does not have a long history like many of our cities around the country. Orlando has been a transplant city, really only growing up over the past 50 years or so. Um, even our diocese, the Diocese of Orlando, just celebrated its 50th anniversary. So in our American culture and our church culture, it's relatively young. Because of that, it doesn't have long established roots like many of the cities when I worked in Baltimore or New York, where we're talking about historical perspectives that go date back hundreds of years. So in Orlando, we have a large transplant population that has brought with it Midwestern perspective, Northeast perspective, Western perspective, but we are still very much in the South. So when you move outside of the city of Orlando, the reality is we are still in the very deep South and the diocese covers nine counties within central Florida. So ranging from going up to Tampa, across to Daytona Beach, up to Ocala, and uh, down to Osceola County and the Everglades, the beginning of the Everglades. And our demographics ranges quite widely. In recent weeks since the protests have begun, Orlando was, I would say, kind of behind a little bit. It took a few days where other cities with, I think, more of a historical perspective reacted and um, protests began. But I would say in the past three days, um, we've seen our streets close downtown and more uh, protests and public reaction to what has taken place with George Floyd is becoming more visible as I think the outrage grows across the country. Absolutely. I know we've seen that um, across the country. Raynell, New Orleans, what are you seeing from your personal perspective the last, uh, the last, I guess, really just about a week or so? Yeah, so New Orleans is um, a bit different from Orlando. Um, New Orleans celebrated, we celebrated our <clears throat> tricentennial in 2018, and Catholicism came to New Orleans basically with the founding of the city. So 300 years of Catholicism, deep, rich history um, for the people in this community. New Orleans serves eight civil parishes, everything encompassing everything. The Archdiocese of New Orleans serves eight civil parishes, encompassing everything from rural 
to suburban and of course inner city and urban. Over the last week, our residents have started gathering and in protest and in support of advocating for black lives and for um, George Floyd and the justice that needs to happen as a result of his death. Our protests here started uh, smaller and they have grown each and every day over the past week. They have been mostly nonviolent. We have not had any incidents of violence or rioting. Uh, last night was the first time that the police used any type of force or weapon or anything with protesters. There was tear gas used to disperse the crowd last night on the Crescent City Connection or Mississippi River Bridge that um, connects the east and west banks of New Orleans. We have responded well, I think, um, in a very positive way as a community, but I think until justice is served, until people feel that there has been a just resolution to this injustice, um, there will be no real rest. It's one of the things that's been powerful to me is, um, you know, one of the things that took place with the killing of George Floyd is that um, the officers were fired right away and they did delay, I think, charging uh, the lead officer. And now all, all four officers have been charged. But even after they were fired, which historically, when we've seen these cases before, that's not always happened so quickly, that the protests and the, and the anger and the frustration continued. You didn't see that mitigated at all. And I think that just shows you the extent of people's frustration and the extent of people's um, anger. Right now, one more um, question about this. You know, I, I think of New Orleans as being one of, if not the kind of largest homes for, for uh, black Catholics in the United States. I know uh, when I was in Los Angeles, a number of um, our, our uh, Catholic black communities really had their roots back in Louisiana and uh, New Orleans specifically. So are you seeing a lot with the church over these last few days as you've seen um, protests start or people communicating communicating that out? So I've, I've seen a lot of response from our black Catholic parishes. Um, our pastors have been extremely sensitive to the events that have unfolded and have been extremely supportive. Of, um, of the community, of the parishioners, of the cause. The Archbishop put out a statement on May 31st, and, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, in the community, as with all leaders, right, there are some people who think you didn't say enough, there are some people who think that you said too much, and then there are some people who are kind of in between. I think that the statement he put out was well received by our community, um, we have a prayer service scheduled for tomorrow, a requiem for black children. It'll be a march, a procession rather, from the chancery to the seminary, and there will be a prayer service. And all three of our bishops will be present, Archbishop Amen, retired Emeritus Archbishop Hughes, and Bishop Ferdinand Cherie, who is our auxiliary bishop. And I think those types of actions um, make our community feel comforted in the fact that they have the support of their, their leadership. Raynell, thank you for that. Um, I'm glad to hear that the church in New Orleans is reaching out to all members of our community. How about you, Henry? How has the church responded in Orlando? Well, I think similar to the Archdiocese of New Orleans and dioceses throughout the country, Bishop Noonan, who is the Bishop of the Diocese of Orlando, on Monday at the National Day of Prayer, 
celebrated liturgy at the cathedral in, in his address um, spoke to using Pope John Paul II in his ad farewell address to uh, Detroit in 1987, talking about how America finds its deepest identity and truest character as a nation, and, how, and that's revealed of how we treat the human person. And so, you know, using that as the basis, you know, Bishop Noonan's address really focused on the dignity of the human person. And we are showing ourselves as a people of faith on how, how that happens, how that occurs, how we treat the human person, and that it's not just an issue during the first nine months of conception, but the human person, that it's a right to life issue during the life of the human person. And so this is a greater issue than one particular moment in life, but humanity in general, in the dignity of the person. So our pastors have been putting out things. I, we gave um, statements. I gave the schools the document, Open Wide Our Hearts, uh, that was published in 2018 for them to put out on their social media. Because as it says in that document, you know, one of the, the sins of of racism is being uh, complicit, not speaking up, and not, you know, voicing and taking a stance against what's occurring. And that the sin of omission is, is it allows racism to continue, and really you're taking part in it. So the uh, churches and the schools have been putting things in their social media to make sure that we are highlighting the fact of, you know, I think Kevin was talking about in the past <clears throat> the civil unrest when we would see the uh, arrests take place it would die down or end. This is not occurring this time because I think we've come to a particular point in our history where we've had this we've had the protests, we've had the advocacy for justice. We've done this time and again whether it was with Freddie Gray, you know, in Baltimore where I was you know, principal in the neighborhood where the riots began on the west side of Baltimore. And actually, my son was living there at the time and worked at the grocery store where the entire uh, beginning of the riots started. So, you know, we're, we're kind of fed up with the fact that the issue gets resolved momentarily because people are screaming and shouting and there's fear in greater society that okay we have to do something right now to stop this but we're not fixing it and so there's a significant difference this time than the last or other times i think because we keep repeating the same process you know we get frustrated we get angry we protest we march we're heard for a moment really to just be silenced and then the status quo continues i agree henry i think that is exactly why the unrest has not ended. And, you know, if we think back to Trayvon Martin, um, someone was arrested but was not convicted. And, you know, just in the last 30 days, you have to think about the death of Ahmaud Arbery. You have to think about the death of Breonna. You have to think about George Floyd. There is only so much that a community can endure before that pressure valve explodes. And I think we're at that point of explosion. And it is, um, it's unfortunate that this is what it takes to get everyone's attention. 
And while I don't condone the violence and the riots and the, and the theft and the destruction of property, what I do recognize is what everyone recognizes, that now everyone is listening and we have everyone's attention. And this is not going away until justice is served and it's done in an appropriate and timely manner. Um, going back to what Henry said about Open Wide Our Hearts, in 2017, I was appointed the first African-American superintendent for the Archdiocese of New Orleans. For an, in an entity that has existed for 299 years, I was the first. The Archbishop, Archbishop Amond, um, said to me, I apologize that you have to be the first because in 2017, there shouldn't be a first African-American anything anymore. And he and I together at that point decided to implement a day of formation for all Catholic school administrators, faculty and staff. We gathered 4,000 people together, educators that work in our schools, and we created this day of formation that addressed issues dealing with Catholic identity, dealing with um, how do we be a more welcoming and inviting community for all people? Uh, how do we create that culture of love and acceptance? And then the second year in 2018, we expanded on that and we kind of narrowed the topic and the focus to um, creating a more welcoming community, a diverse welcoming community for all people because it was a, a direct result of our synod that we had completed in the Archdiocese. And then in our year three, we had Bishop Shelton Fobb from Homa Thibodeau to come and speak on Open Wide Our Hearts. We had our faculty and staffs, our leaders, read the document with their faculty and staff, do discussion, have dialogue. And Bishop Fobb came to do a presentation to our faculty and staff. We asked them to utilize the, the resources that accompany that document on the USCCB website um, to implement those those teachings with their students um, and not just in religion class but across the board and I think we're seeing results and we see results but we're changing mindset we're changing culture which we're, ch we're changing hearts and we're doing that one person at a time and and that's I think our role I'm glad um, you both referenced Open Wide Our Hearts, because I think that is a pastoral letter that all Catholic educators should read and be familiar with and understand what's said in there. A couple of things that I've, and I've, I've, I have read it, talking about the roots of racism have extended deeply into the soil of our society. And I think one of the things that we as Catholic educators and all of us um, especially those of us uh, who are Caucasian or white, have to understand, as a quote from Pope Francis in that document that said, let no one think that this invitation is not meant for him or her. All of us, all of us are in need of personal ongoing conversion. You know, when I read that, one of the things that strikes me too is this great line that a friend of mine used to say is, we, you know, sometimes say the peace of Christ be with you, the peace of Christ be with you. And he said, what we really should be saying is, may the peace of Christ disturb you. You know, and really that transformational message of Christ's peace is about how do we transform our own hearts and how do we make sure that what we're doing as Catholics uh, really reflect that teaching and how we are interacting. And I think that's the challenge of this time is how do we, how do we transform ourselves and so we, that, we can, that, that we can actually improve society. So Henry, let's go back to you and really think about this in context of our Catholic schools. 
And um, obviously, we're talking to educators across the U.S., Catholic educators. What should we do differently, or what should we start to think about different, not differently, but how should we react to this and start to think about it in terms of what we're communicating to students? Because obviously, our aim is to ensure that the students in our classrooms grow up and, and, are, and are better than we are today. Well, Kevin, um, it's, it's, it, it is a process. You know, when we talk about what should we be teaching our students, I think before we get to that point, we have to first understand who is in front of the student. And so when we're looking at the um, impact of our Catholic schools and the difference they can make, from my mindset as a superintendent, I first think of my principals and my teachers because they're the ones that are delivering the message and filtering it. And so that is a Herculean task and you know, I commend Raynell because doing systematic change is just that. It's system-wide. And you have to first start, when you're talking about schools, with the educators. And helping them and inviting them to reflect on themselves, who they are, their own experiences. There's a wonderful paragraph in the document of Open Wider Hearts that talks about, you know, institutional racism and how racism very often is so subtle it's built culturally we don't understand what's already been pre-programmed into our heads by the way we were raised and you know because it's by people that we love we think it's right it's subtle it's unconscious um, so in my own diocese when i arrived you know there were things that that some teachers and principals did that I found um, just unacceptable because of the subtle messaging. I've used this example once before when I was doing a presentation uh, at the NCEA convention. You know, I had a teacher that um, put up a bulletin board. The faculty of this particular school was all Caucasian, white, and the students were a mixture of Haitian, uh, West Indian, and African American for the most part in the entire school. And her bulletin board was made up of monkeys with the student's name on them. And the heading said, my motivated monkeys. And on each monkey, they were holding a banana and the kid's name was written on the banana. So as I'm visiting the school, you know, I'm appalled to see this, but from the principal to the faculty, they did not have any clue as to why this was problematic. So, I bring that up because we I think it's a journey inward as an individual, as an educator, and I think it is our duty as people of faith. If, if I'm going to lead with compassion, and I'm always talking about compassion with my staff and my, my principals, that means I co-suffer with you. I walk with you. I co-passion. So I have to be able to lead myself and enter into your reality, your experience. I have to become selfless, I have to become the other to understand what's happening. And so as Catholic educators, we first have to help make that journey. And in some instances, the reality is, I don't have the time as a superintendent to wait for someone to have this conversion experience because it is a conversion. It's a, it, you're deconstructing things that you learned as a child. And then 
you're struggling with all that because you're also coming into conflict with, okay, people that loved me taught me this. Does that make them bad? And you know, it creates a lot of internal turmoil as you're going through this process of understanding who you are. But I think our Catholic schools have an incredible opportunity because we are based on the fact that we are all created in the image and likeness of God, creating an equal playing field. No one is greater than the other. Amen, Henry. I had the same incident with the monkey bulletin board just this year. And it was, it created <clears throat> such tension because we have at that particular school site, we have three or four African-American employees, either teachers or teacher assistants. And they were so offended by the bulletin board. So, you know, one of them emailed me and I went to take a visit to the school. And this is a school that I visit often for various reasons. And the teacher, you know, when I had a conversation with her about it, she was in tears because she honestly did not realize that what she was doing was considered a racial slur or derogatory racial remark. I mean, she was very sincere. That was not her intention. But it goes back to what Henry said about these things that we've learned and we don't even realize that these things can be um, offensive. Um, you know, something happened to me, to give you two, two examples. I recently became a member of an organization and I was, my husband and I, and Leon and I were asked to be readers for the mass. And I'm a lector in my parish, you know, no big deal. So after mass, one of the members came up to me and said, oh my God, you did such a wonderful job. You are so articulate. And that's like one of the most offensive things that you can say to a black person because you're almost implying that they didn't expect you to speak well because of the color of your skin or because of where you grew up or where you came from. And, you know, I just pulled that person aside and I said, I know that you mean well, I know that you're trying to compliment me, but that can be offensive to people and explained why. And of course he was embarrassed, he was mortified and I didn't do it to embarrass him or to make him feel um, any type of way about it. But I wanted him to be aware because if we don't have those conversations with one another, we'll never move on and we'll never heal and we'll continue to have those types of things. Another thing that happened to me um, when I was an associate superintendent, um, you know, there was a large portion of the, the uh, leadership that I didn't deal with because I was focused on a specific uh, group of schools. And my predecessor was a doctor. She had her doctorate as well. And so they always referred to her as doctor, whatever her last name is. And when I came into the position, they wanted to refer to me on a first name basis. Um, as Raynell. And, you know, I've seen it in, you know, the public and political arenas where President Obama would be referred to as Obama and not President Obama. It's, it's a form of disrespect and it's um, a way to undermine the authority or the education or whatever you have or whatever position that you're in. And I think people sometimes don't even do it consciously. I think a lot of it is subconscious. I think another challenge that we face in our schools, in, in education in general, is that we have a preset idea of what our students are capable of. And that is dangerous, it's destructive, and it holds our children back. And I've dealt with it time and again um, throughout my years, 
you know, even when I arrived here in Orlando, you know, evaluating the standardized test scores and then meeting with the principals who were not hitting an average that was acceptable to me with their communities. You know, a poor African-American community, the principal says, well, you know, we, I love my students, but they're poor, but they're, he just continued with excuses of, you know, they lack imagination because they're poor. It's um, the parents aren't involved. It was one thing after another as to why these children could not achieve like other students with different demographics or cultural backgrounds. And so we see that happen frequently where we look at a child and we already set a bar of achievement for them because they have an accent or because of the color of their skin and we are limiting our children. That's not love. That is not pity. It is racist. I couldn't agree more. And I thank you, Raynell and, and Henry, for, for being with us and, and talking to us. So I have a question. What do you need from the church? What does the community need from the church in order to move forward to be better? And then what do you need from me? I'm your friend. I'm your colleague. What do you need from me? I already know that you need me to stand up and say something, and and I'm there. I can do that and will do that. I hope I already do that. But what do you need from the church, and what do you need from your colleagues? What do you need from me? I think the most important thing that we need is to live the example. We're very good about putting out statements when there's a problem, but how do we how do we live when there's not a problem? If we lived more authentically, if we lived that truth of we are all created in the image and likeness of God and that we are all created equal. And when we see the oppressed, we actively seek out resolution for that oppressed. Then I think that is the reality. And that would help change the conversation as a church, as a community of faith. And from the NCEA, I think it's critical, you know, how actively do we look for and groom African-American and Hispanic leaders? What is the composition of the board of directors? Does it reflect the people that NCEA serves? It's easy to talk when there's problems, again, when there's no problems. How is multicultural leadership, education, development infused in our superintendent's academy, you know, our leadership academies? How does this all play into a regular, ongoing process that's infused? Because this sin did not occur overnight, and it's not going to be healed overnight. Agreed. And to piggyback on what Henry just said, there has to be um, representatives of various cultures, not only on the board of directors of NCEA, but in the leadership positions there as well. We need an infusion of diverse topics to be addressed in everything that we do, not just a what I call drive-by PD where we address it in a session here or we address it in a session there. It should be a part of the very fabric of NCEA, and it should be a part of all that we do to make sure that we are inclusive and that we are walking the walk as well as talking the talk. It is very easy for all of us to say these things. Oh, I support life. Oh, I respect life. I respect the human dignity of all people. 
But when you get in the elevator with a person of color, are you thinking that you're in danger? When you're walking on the street and you see a person of color coming, do you think that you might be in danger? We have to be authentically Catholic and being authentically Catholic embraces the fact that we should love and respect all of us because we are all made in the image and likeness of God. I, I will take that as challenge extended and challenge accepted. Um, we will work on all of those things at NCA because we do want to be part of the solution. So I, I appreciate that very much in your honesty. And um, some of the things you said had already crossed my mind, had already crossed Kevin's mind. So I think we're on the same page there. And hey, we will address it. We will do everything we can to address it because we want to be better. Um, we do. Our kids deserve better and we can do better and we will. So I can assure you of that. So what's, what's one thing you want us to take away from this? One thing that you want everybody to learn or to hear from you? Um, I think that it's, it's a tough time. You know, we have COVID and then we have a horrible, tragic death that should never have happened, a murder really. And so what do we want to do? How do we want to move forward? What, what advice can you give us? Or what is it that you want us to know that um, you haven't been able to say yet? Well, I think what what I want to convey to my colleagues is, you know, I've, I've been trying to stay away from social media because it's, you know, going, it's a wild, wild west on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. Um, but I, I want my colleagues to know that when I say Black Lives Matter, I am not implying that only Black Lives Matter. We know, I know, that all lives matter. But right now, in this moment, we have witnessed the deaths of three African Americans that could very have very easily been my husband, could have been one of my children, could have been one of my nephews, my brothers. We need you to stand with us to say that Black Lives Matter and that we are valued and we are important because our lives are in danger as evidenced by these three deaths that have happened in the last 30 days. I think for myself, um, you know, I one of the things that I love about our documents, um, Open Wide Our Hearts and, and prior ones, it, it's such a message of love. And, you know, when we, we look at Dr. King and his messages of love driving out hate, hate does not um, heal hate. It only creates more. So our gospel message, our, our scripture, it's based on love. And Jesus was about love. And I think Pope Francis, um, one of his quotes, he said, love requires a creative, concrete response. Good intentions are not enough. And so for my colleagues, good intentions just is not enough. It requires action. It requires a response, a concrete response, as Pope Francis says. So sitting back saying to yourself in your living room, that is horrible, really means nothing. Because there's no concrete response. There's no action to it so open your heart open your voice open your mind and speak and 
collectively, we are able to do much more. And, you know, people will say, well, what's my voice going to do? What, what you know, what can I do? You know, when, when my kids would say things, well, why, why are you saying that, Dad? Or why, why do you have to be the person that's always pushing or something? In the back of my mind, what, what drives me is, if not me, then who? If I wait for someone else to do it, then everyone else is going to be waiting for someone else to do it. And then nothing will ever get done. So we all have a moral responsibility. So I ask my colleagues across the country, you know, what is your creative response? What is your concrete response? And together, we make up the body and face of Christ. And so we all have to be together to make up that body of Christ. Henry, that's, uh, that's beautiful. And um, I want to just thank you uh, and Raynell and Kathy for this conversation. Raynell and Henry, I th- you have challenged us. Uh, you've engaged us. I think the, the reality is that we need to do more. And we all recognize that we need to do more. And Henry, I love the phrasing of, if not us, who? And I think our faith that teaches that Christ is present in our human hearts, as present as he is in the Eucharist, that we have to understand that our obligation as Catholics, our obligations as Christians, is to view every single human being as having Christ in the center of their hearts. And when we truly live that way, that's when we'll actually will see um, this transformation take place. Um, so I, th- I thank you both. I thank you for your honesty, for your transparency, for everything that you've shared. I'll let Kathy take us out here, but I just want to extend my tremendous uh, gratitude to both of you for your witness and for the challenge. And uh, I will echo what Kathy said, that it's on us to, to follow up and to, and to actually action, uh, make this actionable in our, in our efforts and our work uh, uh, with intentionality. So thank you both. Kathy? Thank you, Kevin, and thank you, Raynell, and thank you, Henry. I really appreciate you taking the time, and um, I hope everyone who's listening can take something away from this because um, I've been writing notes, and and I have a lot of them. So thank you both for, for that, for teaching, for leading us. We really appreciate it. And as part of your faith community, you you and everybody in our faith community has has prayers for every, each other. Um, that's one of the best things about being a Catholic school educator we help each other out with that with a hand with a kind comment but most importantly with prayer and so we hold you each in our prayers as well as the entire nation right now so we thank you for listening to our podcast and we hope that you'll join us again next time the conversation will continue at nca and throughout the country and um, i think i speak for all catholic school educators when we thank Um, Raynell and Henry for being with us and when we say that we're going to promise to to do better. Um, Henry, your question, how do we live when there is no problem, will be with me for a really long time. So thank you all again for listening and thank you for being a member of NCEA.